Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Michael Bajant. He is the co-author of the blockbuster book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. He is the author of The Jesus Papers, exposing the greatest cover-up in history. He has also written The Messianic Legacy, The Dead Sea Scrolls Deception, The Temple and the Lodge, Secret Germany, The Elixir and the Stone. It goes on and on, ladies and gentlemen. But today we're going to tackle a very complex and delicate subject, and that is the real question of Jesus Christ, of Christianity, of Judaism, and some of the research and discoveries that Michael has made and put together into a synthesis of maybe a new story about religion and spirituality. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Michael Bajant to its rainmaking time. Good afternoon. Very good afternoon, Ken. Well, the first thing I want to say after reading your book is that if we were alive at the time of the Inquisition, you would be burned at the stake, correct? Well, I hope so. I mean, if, if, I, if I wasn't, then I would have failed. I've uh, gone for it because uh, my underlying argument, I suppose, is that what we believe is rather important because what we believe affects how we act. And if we have crazy beliefs, uh, it'll make us do crazy things and cause crazy political outcomes, crazy social outcomes. So be careful with what you believe. It might come true. I think there's a distinction you make that's very clear between the mystery societies and the religious dogma societies or the Vatican and having spiritual beliefs. And I think throughout the entire book, you keep reminding the reader that Jewish people did not kill Jesus, that the Romans killed Jesus, and that we really should be at war with the Vatican and what's happening with the Vatican. Am I incorrect in saying that? Well, uh, no, not really. I, I mean, what happened with the Vatican was that they they took over what was a much broader, uh, widely based movement. I mean, for example, most of the texts which later became part of the New Testament were just a selection of equally valid texts available in the second century AD. There were uh, Gospels for Mary, for example, there was Gospel of Thomas, there was quite a few other texts, but the Rome-oriented theologians went to a lot of effort to on the one hand, restrict the role of women in the church, and secondly, to uh, push the primacy of Rome in terms of creating the theology. You see, originally, Rome wasn't primal. You had the theological schools in Rome and Alexandria and, and uh, Antioch, Constantinople. They were all equal. They were all slightly different. But Rome decided it wanted to rule, and it went out of its way to do it. And that's why now we have a situation where there's these arguments all through Christendom about, for example, the role of women in the church. Can women be bishops? Can women be priests? I mean, there's complete nonsense. In the second century, women were fulfilling all these roles. It's simply 
the Rome attitude or the Rome central attitude that we're up against. I think in the book you said there were two guys that got together and created the paradigm in which women were to be suspect, their involvement in anything related to religion. Well, there were more than two, but there were some uh, prominent people. I mean, there was uh, uh, Tertullian, for example, Hippolytus, uh, Irenaeus. These were mid to late second century AD pro-Rome theologians, and they obviously hated women. There's no question, uh, if, you, if you actually read what they wrote, these people are um, uh, misogynist to, to the extreme. And they won out. They produced the, what then became the orthodoxy. And you see, one of the great lies that has been perpetrated is that the church has been uh, guided by God that through this morass or this range of materials, the materials which won out through the efforts of these particular theologians, that they won out because God was behind it. Therefore, it gives a divine sanction to this particular perspective, which is complete and utter nonsense. I mean, we have to just realize the spin which has been placed upon these original texts is horrendous and wide-ranging and comprehensive. And this is one of the things I go through in my book, particularly the Jesus Papers. I go through the spin, because uh, most of us don't realize how much of it there is, frankly. I am not a theologian. I am not an expert or well-read in the Old or the New Testament, and so I'm not really in a perspective with grounded facts about what is said and what the current spin is. But I have a question about Constantine. Do you agree that Constantine did change a lot of the Bible as we know it? That he changed a lot. That he changed it. In other words, it was translated different than either Aramaic or in Hebrew. This is a, I, I, I don't have any proof one way or the other, but let's put the thing another way. Okay. Constantine and his theologians, uh, particularly Eusebius, were behind a particular spin on the texts. And once they'd created this spin, mysteriously, the texts seemed to reflect it. And the main spin they, they were behind was making Christendom accept the fact that Jesus was divine. I mean, this was the whole point of the Council of Nicaea uh, in 325 AD. Effectively, by a vote of around about 217 to 3, they voted Jesus to be God. And mysteriously, theology came to reflect this quite quickly. Now, there's no document which we can point at and say that Constantine changed this, but the effect is obvious and we can see what he's doing. And we can also see that he's putting Christianity in the service of Roman politics. So the whole thing changes. It, it, it becomes, again, pro-Roman and in support of the Roman state, which is a big difference from what was originally a, a Jewish messianic movement.
from all that you have written and read and researched, can you give your presentation of the context and paradigm in which you are viewing who Jesus was in terms of factual history at this time? It's very difficult to prove who Jesus was in history. We only have uh, two statements from Roman historians who had no particular axe to grind. One said, uh, there's Tacitus and there's uh, Pliny the Younger. One says that a Jewish Messiah was crucified in the time of Pontius Pilate during the time of the Emperor Tiberius. The other uh, had some Christians come into his court because he was governor of part of Turkey, or part of what is now modern Turkey. Uh, and he did some research and found that this movement traced itself back to this Jewish Messiah. We don't know what his name was. Uh, Jesus may not be his name because Jesus is Yeshua, which simply means the deliverer, which could be a title rather than a name. Um, we don't really know anything for sure about his life because the New Testament is theology, it's not history. Um, obviously, there's going to be elements of history in there, but it's very, very difficult to tease them out. I mean, one of the great... Uh, what can I, how can I put it, one of the great uh, collusions, I suppose, that everyone engages in, even myself, uh, because there's no way out of it, is that we tend to treat much of the New Testament as history, simply because if we didn't, there wouldn't be anything to talk about. And, and yet, while we're treating it as history, we've got to keep at the back of our minds that this might not be the way it occurred at all. And that's why in the Jesus papers, I have another very, very close look at the crucifixion because there's something very, very strange indeed happens during the crucifixion. If you view it from the point of view of a historian, which I am, something quite different comes out. There is no way that Pontius Pilate could have executed Jesus. There's no way he could have allowed him to be executed because Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor named prefect of Judea. He only had two tasks. One was to make sure there was peace in the country and secondly, to make sure that the Jews paid their taxes back to Rome. Rome didn't care about anything else. And yet you had this Jewish Messiah he was standing up and saying, according to the New Testament, pay the taxes. So if Pontius Pilate had executed him, Pontius Pilate himself would have gotten into serious trouble and probably lost his head. And yet the crucifixion is a Roman execution. It's not Jewish. Can you explain that part, what you just said about that the execution wasn't Jewish? Explain it. The Jews did not engage in crucifixion. Crucifixion, by Roman law, was a specific action which was used for political prisoners or people who had been condemned politically. It was a, a Roman execution for politics, for uh, engaging in anti-Roman politics. That's what they used it for. It was, it was a specific execution. Uh, the Jews would never have done it. If the Jews were going to condemn someone to death, they would stone them to death. 
So we've got a Roman, a Roman execution, supposedly, yet the governor had no reason to execute Jesus, and if he had executed him, the governor himself would have been in trouble because Jesus was saying, pay the taxes. Now, there's something very, very strange going on here. And my argument is that with the connivance of Pilate, Jesus survived the crucifixion. And as a historian, there is no other conclusion to come to. When, for example, Jesus is taken down from the cross and taken off to his tomb, and they take various uh, herbs and spices and so on, Joseph of Arimathea turns up that night with them. The implication is that they're embalming substances. But if you actually look up an ancient use of medicinal herbs, you find, in fact, these substances which Joseph of Arimathea took were to stop bleeding, to deal with shock. Uh, they were medicinal herbs to help someone survive. There is something very strange going on with the crucifixion, which I focus on. In the book, you talked about there were two people, one on each side of him, correct? Yeah, yeah. And who were these two people? They were called um, Lestoy, which uh, translates, or has been translated as thieves, but this doesn't give the half of it. Basically, they were zealots. They were political prisoners because at one stage, Jesus seems to have had the support of the anti-Roman political terrorists, really, in Judea. But by saying pay the taxes, he broke with this putative support, and they clearly turned on him. But the Romans understood it, and by crucifying two other political prisoners along with Jesus, they made that point very strongly. What is this telling us, that he was substituted or rescued? And if so, where does it go from there? He was rescued, he survived, and he only had one place to go after that because he couldn't go north, he couldn't go west, he couldn't go east, he could only go south, down to Egypt. Now, curiously, a little-known fact, but it's perfectly true, is that there was a functioning Jewish temple in the Delta in Egypt from about 170 BC right through to about 74 or 75 AD. And this temple may well have actually have been a more legitimate temple in terms of the priestly line serving it. Are you talking about the Mound of Judea? Well, it's now called the Mound of Judea. It's right. underneath there. No, no one's excavating it because it's, uh, it's too politically contentious to excavate. The, the only archaeologist who's ever had a, a poke around it was Flinders Petrie around about, you know, around the 1900, early 1900s. But no one has touched it ever since. And the suburbs of a nearby town are gradually encroaching on the area and very soon will simply cover it and it'll be lost forever. You see, what happened was, uh, around 170 BC, the Syrian king invaded 
Palestine, and the high priest, Ananias fled into exile while the temple was being looted. And Ananias was a friend of the pharaoh in Egypt, uh, Ptolemy VII. And he asked Ptolemy whether he could have an old disused temple which he could create into a Jewish temple. And Ptolemy gave him an old temple of Bubastis in the delta, and the main road leading from Heliopolis, in fact, through to Palestine. I mean, Heliopolis was is now where Cairo Airport is. And they built, they converted this old temple into a Jewish temple, and it functioned as a Jewish temple for about 200 years. And it was, as far as one can work out, it was it was more mystical than the temple in Jerusalem. And my argument is that this is the place where Jesus learned his trade, his mysticism, his messianic attitudes. And it's back to this temple that he fled later on when he had to get out of Judea. Jesus and Mary Magdalene, of course, who... Uh, of long argued uh, were husband and wife. That was the basis of your book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail? That's right. Well, it was one of the, one of yes. the bases. Can you give the context of that book for us? Because that was an earlier important book of yours. Yeah, it came out about 1982. And give the context to the audience, if you can, Michael, on Holy Blood, Holy Grail. The premise is what? <laughs> well, it's a fairly... It's long. Uh, I know it's a big book. But during the course of it, we argued that uh, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and had at least uh, one child, and that Mary Magdalene and the child uh, ended up in a Jewish community in France, uh, probably um, in Narbonne would be my guess, because the Narbonne Jewish community survived right through to the 5th uh, to 6th century, in fact, AD, whereas the only other big community in Marseille had turned Christian um, two or three hundred years earlier. So, And we have later in Narbonne uh, Jewish travelers report that there's families in Narbonne who claim line of David descent and can produce genealogies to support it. Wow. So my guess would be Narbonne was the place they, they ended up. Now, just I want to clarify something. Your context for Mary was not only she was married to Jesus and produced a child with him, but that she was also one of the people that was taught by Jesus, correct? One of the people who... Was taught, received his teachings. One of the difficult problems um, with taking the New Testament at face value as, as containing a lot of history is the easy relationship which Jesus had with the women of his entourage, which was quite different from the mores which pertained at the time. I mean, men and women didn't mix as freely and as easily as Jesus seems to have done. Uh, I mean, for example, meets a woman near the well at her mouth and sits and chats to her, and afterwards the disciples complain. But if we put in some of the other Gospels of the second century, which are just as valid as those Gospels which are now in the New Testament that have been excluded, if we put in the Gospel of Thomas, we put in the Gospel of Mary, we find expressed a very, very close relationship 
between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And that goes some way to explaining why it is that Mary Magdalene anoints Jesus after he goes to Jerusalem. This is in the New Testament. And it also leads one to have another look at the marriage at Cana, which I believe was Jesus' own marriage. Uh, it's, it's a complex area, certainly, but in Holy Blood, Holy Grail, we go through it very, very slowly and simply ask the questions and seek the answers so that the reader knows every stage of the process. We're not trying to fool anybody. We're not trying to uh, pull the wool over anybody's eyes. We're just saying, look, let's ask some very simple, some very pertinent and some very directed questions. And this is the way we move through. And in my book, The Jesus Papers, which admittedly I wrote about 25 years later, but it contains everything that I'd learned during those 25 years, I use a similar process. I'm asking questions. I'm seeking answers. You see, when you're confronted by a belief system, the first thing you need to be able to do is retain the independence to question that system, to ask questions of why, how, what does it mean, is this right, should I believe this? We have to keep asking questions, and this is one of the things which I'm pushing in the Jesus papers, because blind belief ends up basically with a kind of fascism. That is what's taught, though, in the New Testament is faith, trust in things unseen. So well, this is from Paul. This is from Paul, of course. And in the New Testament, we have yeah. two very distinct theologies. We have the theology of uh, the Jerusalem leadership, which ended up under James. And if you read the letter of James, you'll find that it's pushing a theological perspective very, very different from that of Paul. Paul producing a religion. Paul is no longer really operating within Judaism. Paul is operating to a much wider perspective. And to that extent, one could admire him because uh, he's, he's looking at, at much more dis distant horizons. But nevertheless, there's this split in the New, New Testament. The New Testament is not a coherent uh, theological document. H however much people may argue it, it's not. I mean, I, I just repeat, look at uh, the letters of Paul and compare them to the letter of James, and you can see precisely uh, what, what I mean there. So one of the things you said in the book was that Paul did not know Jesus. The Gnostics were concerned about knowing through experience of who God is. Yeah, well, the Gnostics had an experiential approach to truth. Paul had a faith approach to truth. And my argument is that experience is greater than faith. For example, if you're told not to put your hands in a fire because you'll get burned, then, okay, you can choose not to put your hand in the fire. But if you do put your hand in the fire and you get burned, you know the pain. You know not to put your hand in the fire. Now, your actions will be the same as someone who doesn't know the pain. But the first person isn't putting their hand in the fire because they believe they'll have pain, whereas you know you're going to have pain. 
And my argument is that knowledge is always superior to faith. And the Gnostics believe the same thing. You can have faith that uh, divinity exists, whether we call divinity God or whether we call it uh, integrity or whatever name we want to give it. You can have faith that there exists some basic source of all spirituality. But the Gnostics were concerned with experiencing directly that spirituality through particular practices, uh, meditative practices, uh, entering the stillness, entering the silence. They had various means by which they sought to create or recreate this experience. And my argument is it is always much better to experience for yourself spirituality than simply to have faith that it exists. I mean, faith that it exists is obviously a stepping stone in the right direction, but there's further to go. It sounds like what would be underneath that declaration is some type of initiatory-based experience that you've been through. Yeah, you can call it initiatory. I mean, this is my whole attitude. I, I mean, it's necessary to seek ways of touching, apprehending, knowing, the spiritual source of all things. I mean, basically, I'm a mystic. I mean, that's where I'm coming from personally and have been have been coming from there for many, many years. And I, I think that that's why I can't throw my lot in with any one religion because spirituality exists, that's not in doubt, and it expresses itself in many different ways. But it doesn't make one way necessarily better than another way. There's many many routes to the top of the mountain, as they say. But if you don't know or if you've not experienced that source of spirituality, the danger is that you'll get locked into a particular belief system and think that that is the only way to the top of the mountain and that every other path is a wrong path. And this is where you get people who argue over the name of God. Is it Allah? Is it God? Is it... Jehovah, I mean, there is nothing more pointless. It's like arguing over the name of snow or the name of water, or it's just, it is so stupid and so pointless, and yet so many people do it. And this is the problem, of course, with the uh, fundamentalist approach to religion. Now, I know the word fundamentalist in the United States has various nuances, which it doesn't have here in Europe, but if I can just use it in its basic form, um, uh, this restriction of belief to one particular path to me is one of the greatest dangers we face as human beings, frankly. How have you been attacked for what you've written and what you've said? I'm sure everything, but what, what I've is I've been the... attacked about everything, and I've been attacked in every, every way you can imagine, apart from being shot, because I'm still here talking to you. But people have been aware of the dangers. I've given lectures with undercover policemen sitting around the first row because they were worried about things. Um, I've received hate mail by the bucket load. I've been told I'm working for the Antichrist. Uh, I've been ridiculed. I've been criticized. I've been hauled onto television programs with academics who oppose my position, who have tried to argue me down unsuccessfully. 
Um, I've had arguments with priests on television, radio, uh, in print. I, I mean, the thing is, when you, when you challenge belief systems, you're challenging not just something which is held intellectually, but something which is held emotionally. Totally, totally. And when people have an emotional attachment to something, you can't discuss it rationally. You, you can't sit down and have a an interesting debate on the subject because it very quickly becomes angry. And uh, I mean, even with uh, you know highly intellectual Catholic professors who one would assume would manage to keep things on an intellectual basis, they too have become so angry that on occasion they can't even say goodbye to me at the end of the program. I, I'm sure you understand why, right? Because you're, you're basically take, pulling the rug out on their relationship with a savior, a being that you're basically announcing isn't who we thought he was. And it's exactly. hard. It's hard. Yeah, I, I know precisely why. Um, but there's nothing I can do because were I not to do that, I'd be living a lie. And that's worse. You've done a lot of traveling, a lot of cave exploration. I read about your explorations in Italy with uh, Robert Temple. Yep. And I was wondering why you mentioned that in the Jesus Papers book. There was a reason you mentioned it, but I couldn't put it together. Well, the reason that particular underground temple yes. was a, a temple... As far as we could tell, I mean, we haven't excavated it yet, though we have now raised the money to do it. Right. Um, was a temple where people were initiated into the mysteries of death. Now, in the ancient classical mysteries and the ancient Egyptian mysteries, initiation was an initiation into the other world, the world of the dead. And it was considered that it was a good idea to have a look at the place you were going when you died, before you died. But the thing was, when you were initiated in, into the secrets of this other world, you weren't allowed to talk about it. And so very, very little is known about the procedures and so on of these mystery traditions. There's very little that, that survived. And what little has survived, I've put in my book, The Jesus Papers. But what's clear is this initiatory uh, quality. Now, the, the thing is, we're up against a lot of prejudice. A, a fellow I know who's the, probably the biggest European expert on the Mithras cult, and he took uh, my wife and I one day down to an underground Mithras temple, which is not open to the public at all. And at the end of the temple was this incredible painting of Mithras fighting the bull in beautiful colors. It's in perfect condition. Well, it was when it was first discovered. But now the eyes of Mithras have been gouged out and mutilated. And as this particular archaeologist told me, that mutilation has been done by an archaeologist who found Mithras too challenging to his faith. So even today, amongst educated archaeologists, these things are incredibly sensitive and incredibly powerful. Sometimes the emotions simply get the better of them.
I know exactly what you're talking about. I just did an interview with Michael Cremo on his book, The Forbidden Archaeologist, oh, yeah. about archaeological finds, which are millions of years old, are not allowed to go public at all and squashed so that that information never gets to the public how old the human race really is. It's fascinating. Uh, yeah. fascinating. And Michael Cremo is doing us all a big favor. I, I, I've only met him the once, but I liked him. And... Uh, what he's doing is fantastic. Fascinating, fascinating man. And I think you're also doing us all a favor, but a lot of us will resent you. <laughs> <laughs> the problem you have is that you're not just doing it on archaeology. You are putting the pieces together of things that don't make sense in the way the Bible communicates itself as a form of history rather than as allegory, correct? Yeah. Look, look I mean, the bottom line is I just do what I can do. Uh, I'm not really on a crusade or anything like this. It's just what I do. And it just happens that I had some questions. I sought the answers. And the, the, the road by which I traveled to try and figure these answers out, uh, you know, I've written about. It, it, that's, that's the simple fact of it. Um, I, I don't I'm not sort of filled with hate or anger or, um, you know, I'm not trying to destroy things. I'm just trying to understand what really is going on and to get behind the spin. I mean, we all know about political spin, but a lot of us have forgotten that there's a, a lot of religious spin as well. What do you think happened in Italy? such that you went into the caves in the northwest corner of the Bay of Naples. What do you think happened? What was your take after you left? Like, what were you left with going into uh, the caves uh, there? Utter excitement. I mean, uh, you see, this underground temple, it's, it's down a 600-foot tunnel into a cliff. You were pretty brave to go through there. I read the details of that. It was pretty <laughs> scary just reading it. <laughs> uh, I, I love tunnels. I, I spend a lot of time in tunnels because that's where there's a lot of lot of hidden hidden things. Uh, the, the Romans were so scared of this place that they filled it with rubble. And my feeling is that the temple down there, uh, 600 feet down this narrow tunnel, which runs due east-west, by the way, uh, I think they would have left everything in the temple because if they were that scared of the place, they wouldn't have pulled anything out because they would have been too superstitious to take anything out in case the uh, you know the spirits followed them or something like this. You know who who knows? But I think they there's precedence in the Mediterranean. I know in Mallorca they did this kind of thing. They they used to smash the things up and then cover them. And I think that's what they've probably done in this temple. I think they've smashed everything up and just filled tunnels with rubble as they came out. But, of course, the rubble is now settled, and there's now about an 18-inch gap between the top of the rubble and the top of the tunnel. I mean, over 2,000 years or so, uh, it's just settled that much. So what I'm hoping is that in that temple there, we'll find a whole lot of material which will allow us to read the site because there's an underground river there too, which is very unusual, and a whole complex of tunnels. I think we only found a small part of them. How did you not get lost? Um, I mean, I was getting lost reading about you in there, going through to the left, to the right, and oh, 
Well, you know, I, uh, I sort of did get lost a few times. Quite confusing down there. There's a tunnel, you, 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 go, you go to the end of it, and when you get to the end of it, you hope you can turn around and come back. The main thing I was worried about is that I wouldn't be able to turn around at the end, and I'd have to sort of end up crawling backwards down a tunnel, which is not as easy as crawling forwards. That's scary just listening to it. <laughs> God! I bet your wife didn't appreciate you going down in there, that not knowing if you would come out. Um, she didn't know. Oh, my God. That's a good thing. You Wow. I'll bet she wouldn't have let you go. Uh, well, she was outside. She didn't know what I was doing down there. Oh, my God. I actually got her down there. You even had the other people with you scared to death. Well, that's true. I ran out of rope, so I just untied it and let it go and kept going. Oh, my God. That's wild. I mean, what can they do? You can't, how can you pull someone out with a rope anyway? It's that's ridiculous. true. That's true. I guess it's a way to just know where you are. Well, to know I'm still there, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to us about the Dead Sea Scrolls. So many people are interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I haven't read your other book, The Dead Sea Scroll Deception. What are you saying? Well, that came out quite some time ago, and there's been a lot of changes in the Dead Sea Scrolls okay. since that time. I mean, they've now been made available to everyone. But at the time I wrote the book, they weren't available. And we were arguing that they should be available because by restricting access to them, they were perpetrating a spin on the material. I mean, as I'm constantly going on about, I, I, I dislike the spin that's put on religious uh, uh, systems. And the Dead Sea Scrolls was one very obvious one. It was in the hands of people who controlled the area, they controlled physically the scrolls, they controlled the interpretation of them, they controlled what scrolls people could could know about. And we discovered that one of the scroll talked about uh, someone called the Son of God. Now, if that's not a parallel with Christianity, I don't know what is. But they didn't release that scroll for something like 45 years. And you have to ask yourself, why didn't they release it for 45 years? I talked to a Jesuit who was in Jerusalem at the museum where the scrolls were held on the day that that particular fragment came in, which had talked about the Son of God. And I said to him, well, I suppose it took you quite a long time to translate it. He said, no, he said, we had it more or less translated by the next morning. So in 1958, and when was it released? Well, sometime in the 1990s. Now, you tell me. I mean, is that a mark of true scholarship or a reluctance to let something out? Deathly fear of some other interpretation coming. That's what the Dead Sea Scrolls deception is about. The deception, probably not the best word we could have chosen, but uh, these days we'd use the word spin. But of course, back in the early 90s, um, spin wasn't really a term that anyone understood. So uh, deception was the word we went with. So what do the Dead Sea Scrolls, let's say at Cove 7 in Quamran, you said they're written in Greek on papyrus and the other caves were written in Hebrew and Aramaic on parchment. Most of the scrolls are in Aramaic or Hebrew. Well, most of them are in Hebrew, to be honest, some in Aramaic. But what's very interesting is that the scrolls from, I think it's Cave 7, all of them were in Greek. Now, 
what that means is that there were members of the Sproul community who were of a, a violently nationalistic community. We have to understand the Scroll community hated the Romans, wanted to get rid of them, hated the Herodian kings and wanted to get rid of them. And it's rather interesting that the temple was built by the Herodian kings. And so that gives another twist on the whole, you know, the, the Wailing Wall phenomenon. I mean, we've got now, uh, you know, the the particularly the Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem uh, spend a lot of time at the Western Wall. That was built by Herod, who uh, wasn't actually Jewish and who perpetrated a lot of crimes on the Jewish people. So, you know, there's a few problems there. How did you find that out, Michael? Well, it's, well, it's, it's standard history. We know that Herod built the temple, Herod's temple. We, we know that, that no one would dispute it. What people like to forget is how awful Herod was. Herod methodically murdered all the surviving members of the line of David that he could get his hands on. He drowned the the male heir in the in the pool of his villa in Jericho. He had others murdered. I mean, he was a terrible person. And yet, it's his temple that uh, everyone worships at. I, I just think there's there's a bit of a problem there. Wow. But no one's talking about it. You are. I am. So how do the Jewish people and the Israelis respond to your declaration of that in the historic record? Well, the Israelis have given me a bit of a hard time one way or the other. Uh, not too bad, but... What did they say? Well, no, they've just done sort of funny things. Like on one occasion, they loaded an entire 747 with passengers ready to take off, except for me. And they left me in this little departure hall with all my luggage for about, you know, 20 minutes or so. And everyone studiously ignored me. Um, eventually, they loaded me on and we took off. But it's just these sort of, I get picked up in the street a lot and questioned and this kind of stuff, just sort of low-key hassles. The problem is that I've written about the relationship between the fundamentalist Christians in the United States and the right-wing Israeli politicians. You see, the right-wing Israeli politicians are quite happy to accept all this money and support from the fundamentalist Christians who believe that there's certain signs before Jesus comes back, and that is you know, the formation of the State of Israel, which has happened, the taking of Jerusalem, which has happened, and the third thing is the rebuilding of the temple, which hasn't yet happened, but they're keen that it should occur. But of course, if you ask any fundamentalist Christian what will happen then, Jesus will come back and will convert all the Jews to Christianity. Now, the Jewish authorities, of course, when you ask them that, they don't really want to talk about it. Do you mean the Jewish authorities or the Israeli authorities? And they're not necessarily the same. They're not necessarily the same, but both of them have pretty much the same attitude. Okay. They are quite happy to accept the money and the political support, but uh, they don't really want to explore the implications of the belief systems, which, as I've said, is that Jesus is going to come back and convert the Jews to Christianity. So there's a problem there, too, which no one likes to talk about too much which I talk about. In fact, I, my last book, Racing Towards Armageddon, um, I talk about it quite extensively. 
because that's what that book is concerned about, these kind of problems. What do you think about Mordecai Gihan? Well, I don't know. You mean the, the expert on Bar Kokhba? Or yes, yes, else? the expert on Bar Kokhba. Yeah, he's a really, really good man. Um, I was going to do a book with him, in fact. Uh, I never did. I would still like to. I think Bar Kokhba is one of the most fascinating characters in Jewish history. Can you talk about him? Yeah, I mean, Bar Kokhba emerged around the very early second century. And he obviously had spent some time or served in the Roman army because he knew Roman army tactics. And he had these huge caves in the Jordan Valley where he used to train his guys secretly in uh, you know, Roman style of warfare. And at the same time, Jewish captives were working as slaves for the Roman army and they were producing the weapons. And Suetonius tells us that the Jewish captives used to make slightly substandard weaponry and so the Romans would reject them. And this substandard weaponry would, would not be melted down and remade, but it would be stolen and given to Bar Kokhba's forces. And eventually, Bar Kokhba emerged, and he actually fought and defeated uh, the Roman legions in Judea. And, and for probably three or four years, there were no Roman legions there at all, and Bar Kokhba ruled. But where he came unstuck was that he relied on the Parthians, who were, who were about the only uh, country that Rome was absolutely terrified of, because the Parthians were these amazing horsemen uh, who fired arrows, and they, could, they just would sweep into the armies, fire their arrows, and sweep away again. And the Romans could never really get their measure. And the idea was the Parthians were going to invade uh, from the, the, the north-east, uh, and Bar Kokhba was going to manage to kind of solidify his position. But, of course, he was on a hiding to nothing because whatever Bar Kokhba did, there's always going to be too many Roman legions, and that's eventually what happened. The Romans threw, I think, six or seven legions in, and they just wiped it out, wiped Judea out. But the cost in blood was so tremendous, both on the Roman side and the Jewish side, that by the late second century, both sides were pretty much at peace. They just, um, they just weren't, <laughs> weren't annoying each other again because the, the, the cost had been too high and they realized that it was ridiculous. But it's, it, it produced really the beginnings. I mean, rabbinical Judaism had started a little earlier, but, but it, it it dominated after the demise of Bar Kokhba. I mean, that's where the current style of Judaism really um, took off and um, reached well into the diaspora. So Bar Kokhba is a fascinating figure and one of the great heroes of Jewish history. And Mordecai Gihon uh, is probably the greatest expert on Bar Kokhba, who had, as I say, a lot of underground sites where he used to hide his men who could sort of emerge, fight, and then just melt back into the hills. And no one knew where they were. You have a very interesting life, don't you? Um, well, I get bored easy. <laughs> I think you've picked the most exciting and yet challenging and scary thing to follow, really. 
I called Michael Cremo the Colombo of archaeology, but I'm going to come up with a name for you. <laughs> as long as it's a nice one, I can live with just about anything. <laughs> Talk a little bit about why you think the Vatican has obtained and destroyed writings for so long, and that basically all things lead to Rome. And what can be done about it? Well, I say in my book that all the rivers of blood lead to Rome, and I think that's pretty much it. I mean, Rome is all about power and centralization, and that's all that you need to know. As we now say, ironically, uh, Rome, Rome is the sort of moral arbiter. I mean, all the scandals that it's had recently show just how thin uh, that moral status of Rome is. But it's it's... Rome, right from the start, has been about power. Because remember, initially, it was the Roman Empire, and when the Roman Empire disintegrated, really, uh, we had the popes. You see, the, the, first, the first pope who became a strong man was really in the early 5th century, and that's about the time when the Visigoths first invaded and looted Rome. So the political and military entity of Rome was disintegrating, but the theological entity of Rome was becoming powerful. And that's basically what happened. The popes took over the role, in a sense, of the emperors. Do you think that in your lifetime, Rome will be destroyed? Oh, I hope not. Rome's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. I mean, it is the lair of the beast, admittedly, but... Um, uh, you know, I, I couldn't care less what happens to St. Peter's so long as they save the artworks. Uh, I, I'd like to see the end of the papacy. I'd like to see the Pope just Bishop of Rome again, the way he always was, and have a sort of decentralized Catholic Church so that if uh, the uh, bishops in, say, the United States wanted to allow married priests or women priests, they could, because there's no theological objection to women priests or married priests, however much Rome may squirm and argue and complain, that there's no, there's no theological objection. There's no theological necessity for celibacy, anything like that. Decentralization would allow it to be flexible and to survive, but the, the longer they try to keep this thing centralized and rigid, the more likely it is that it will just crumble. Um, it, it's unsustainable as it's going along at the moment. But uh, no, 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 let's not destroy Rome. It's, oh, no, I, 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 I wasn't asking that. It's <laughs> beautiful. Have you been to Rome? I have, and I wasn't asking that for my interest in having Rome destroyed at all, but there are some prophecies that assert that Rome will be destroyed and the papacy will be destroyed. Well, uh, I mean, I think the, the, uh, the papacy may well be. I mean, the, there's this prophecy... Uh, which has been uh, it's about a thousand years old now, which the, the prophecies of St. Malachi... I was just going to mention him. ...taken quite seriously in the Vatican. And they say that this present Pope will probably be the last, or no, or maybe it's the one following. I, I, I'd have to check exactly. Right. It has something to do with olive or something like that, the that's olive right. tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's either this Pope or the next Pope that sees the end of the papacy. And Jung had a, a similar kind of vision. I don't know what you think about Jung's visions, but uh, had a similar kind of thing. I, I just, but you don't need to be a prophet to see that Rome's either got to be flexible and adapt or fail. 
in this modern world. It's as simple as that. You can't carry on the way they're carrying on and hope to survive. You are an editor of, is it a Masonic magazine or newspaper? It's a magazine. It's, magazine. Uh, uh, it's about 80 pages and it goes out to about 230,000 uh, people, I guess. It's quarterly. It's stress enough. <laughs> I would imagine that if you're an editor of a Masonic magazine, are you also a Mason? Yeah, yeah. I've been a Freemason since the early 90s. Can you share a little bit, whatever you can share, about the paradigm of a Freemason and how is a Freemason that would impact or contribute to your research, either questions or analysis? Well, the thing with Freemasonry is that at its heart, I mean, it's a very ancient system, um, much modified, but at its heart, it's a journey towards insight into spirituality. I mean, that's its, that's its point. Unfortunately, the majority of Freemasons don't understand that, and they see it as a kind of uh, dining club or social club or something of a sort. So with the magazine, while it's basically there with articles of about you know Freemasons who do this or um, that, what I try to do in every issue is to have something which pushes the buttons of spirituality and the spirituality contained within the journey of Freemasonry, because if that's ever lost, then Freemasonry is finished. But as a, an ecumenical system, because you're not allowed to talk about politics or religion in Freemasonry, and you can be of any religious or any political persuasion and join, uh, I think it's valuable, because in this modern world, we're, we're, getting, we're getting more and more isolated in a sectarian manner and in a political manner. I mean, look at the disputes between politics in all our countries, how, how heated these arguments get, or look at the bitter disputes between religions that, that, that are occurring, whereas in Freemasonry, there's none of that. Everyone's there in pursuit of spiritual insight. Now, it's not a particularly focused system, and it's had a lot of manipulation by people who didn't really understand what they were doing. But at its heart, it's good, I, I think, and I think it's a force for good, and it's a force for morality, it's a force for dealing honestly with people. And why I like it is because most of the people in Freemasonry that I meet are of a similar persuasion. They, they understand that things that they couldn't talk about, you know, there might be lawyers or judges or airline pilots or school teachers, they, you know, they can't go banging on about spiritual journeys in their jobs because people would think they were weird. But in Freemasonry, you can, and you can explore these topics and be with other people who care about them, frankly. And I think that's the reason. If you're with people who care, you've got a kind of mutual support system, so you don't feel isolated. You know, one of the great problems in the modern world is isolation. And so we need organizations who bring people of like minds together, and that's what happens in Freemasonry. I like it, and I think it's a force for good, but it needs constant vigilance. Otherwise, it too could go the way of so many other organizations and 
become source of conspiracy or a source of domination. I have a question about Freemasonry. Is it true that in Freemasonry that there are secrets or that there are levels of initiation and expertise and knowledge? Well, yes, I suppose. So if somebody says the president was awarded a 33-degree Masonry degree, uh, what does that mean? It means pretty well nothing. <laughs> okay. It means pretty well nothing. I mean, um, you know, I'm a 30th degree Mason. I was asked if I wanted to go further. I declined. Um, I mean, to become a 33-degree Mason, it's sort of an administrative, the, the, the top, sort of three or four degrees are more administrative than initiatory, though there are initiations associated with them naturally. And, you know, you learn things that people in other degrees wouldn't know, but they're not necessarily more spiritual. Okay. All you need, I mean, just the basic three degrees of basic Freemasonry have all the secrets and insights that you would ever need, frankly. I mean, that's my considered opinion um, you know, after X number of years in Freemasonry. The, the problem with Freemasonry is there's a lot of people who see it as another way of getting a little bit of status or a little bit of power or, or thinking that they're better than someone else. I mean, you've got to sort of try and combat that tendency towards self-aggrandizement. happens in every organization and it happens in Freemasonry and it's a it's a sort of cancer that runs through it, and I, I oppose it constantly in my magazine, and, uh, you know, one has to just keep opposing it, otherwise uh, it would take over, probably. It's, again, just you just need constant vigilance. I mean, I think what lies behind your question is, is someone who's a 33-degree Mason going to have more spiritual secrets than, say, an 18-degree Mason or a third-degree Mason my answer would be no. Um, he knows more about the Scottish Rite system, but the Scottish Rite system isn't necessarily more spiritual than uh, the basic Blue Masonry, as it's called in the States, uh, system. Did Freemasonry help shape your research abilities or give you some type of access to something that enables you to do the kind of research that you do and ask the kind of questions that you um, do? No. I mean, I had access to Masonic libraries and things prior to joining. I mean, I joined, actually, because I just um, rather enjoyed the people I met and got on with them and realized that here was a whole group of people who were rather similar to me. But subsequently, what can I say? There's sort of an alternative information network going on in Freemasonry, and you learn a lot of very strange and interesting things, which are known that Freemasons have been involved in, that you wouldn't know unless you were a Freemason, you see what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you know, political or um, religious things. Uh, I've not used any of them in my books or my research, but I, I do find some of these stories fascinating. Uh, it's just out of fascination, really. I, no, nothing that I've done in Freemasonry has actually facilitated the kind of research that I do. Uh, I can say that quite clearly. In fact, my research is quite separate from my Freemasonry, to be honest. Right. I just wanted to know if it helped shape the way you're doing the research or allowed you to become more receptive. Or What would have been useful, probably, is if I'd been a Freemason when I wrote Holy Blood, because 
there's a whole kind of conspiratorial network in France that we explored in Holy Blood. And I've since found out a whole Masonic angle to all that. I've found a lot of the people that I was looking at have turned up in uh, sort of strange Masonic uh, groups, which I, I've been tempted to research and write about over the years, but I, I simply haven't had the time, to be honest. Um, that would have been useful because we could have fleshed that book out a bit more along those lines. And we also found out a lot more about the esoteric and secret connections of people like Debussy and um, a lot of the writers and artists who were around him. And Debussy was in this group called the Priere de Sion. We've had a lot of flack, actually, a lot of criticism over the Priore de Sion. Uh, people say it's fraudulent and it's all made up and the rest of it. But actually, were I to write that book now, I could nail a lot of this stuff down a lot more firmly, simply as a result of what I've learned through Freemasonry. But, you know, uh, it's not worth redoing the whole book on that account. It could be a compendium, right? Or an edition. Yeah, you could, could do or put it on the on, on the net or something. It could do. It would take a bit of work. That's the only thing, a bit of time. Um, but yeah, there is stuff out there that nails, nails these things down. But see, quite a lot of academics now are working in that area. I mean, there's a, a woman doing a PhD in Holland at this very moment um, on the esoteric connections of a lot of these people uh, that we talked about in Holy Blood, plus a whole lot of others, like Picasso and the other, and people like that. I mean, the the artistic um, world in Europe in the you know late 1800s, early 1900s, was very esoterically minded. I mean, that's the point. And they belonged to all kinds of different orders. Um, some Masonic, some non-Masonic but kept close links with Freemasonry like the Martinists and uh, so on. Were women invited into Freemasonry or is it just happening now? No, there's been women's Freemasonry since the late uh, 18, uh, late 19th century. And really? There's two orders of women's Freemasonry and one order of mixed Freemasonry, that is with men and women. Um, over the last probably 15 years or so, male sort of Freemasonry has become much friendlier towards female Freemasonry. And in fact, in various parts of England, um, the women use the men's Masonic temples and so on to meet in. So, and also, of course, a lot of Freemasons' wives are, are members of uh, women's Freemasonry lodges. There's a lot of sort of family membership, both men and women are both Freemasons. I think that's probably the same in the States. I've never known any women that were Freemasons, but I have met a few men who were. I just didn't know. I wanted to find out. Yeah, no, no. There's certainly women's Freemasonry. I mean, I'd quite happily have women in Freemasonry, but it just won't happen. I mean, I've in my magazine, I sort of wrote a, or had someone write a short article on the possibility just to see what would happen. And I got lorry loads of letters complaining about it. Uh, 
so you know it's just it's just not the time's just not right for that yet but uh, I think eventually eventually it'll happen frankly um, I don't I, I, I think I, I can't see how it cannot happen I have a, another two questions for you. Do you think that, from all your research, that Jesus was in India? Because I know there's a lot of writing about how Jesus was. No, I don't was think in... he was in India. You don't? No, I think. I mean, certainly, at least one of the disciples went there. But uh, uh, I think what happened was members of his group, uh, after the destruction of of Jerusalem by the Romans, fled. And I think they eventually made their way across Persia and Afghanistan and so on into India. I think that's what happened. I mean, there's a, an old friend of mine who's now sadly dead, or he died some time ago, Hugh Schoenfield, wrote a book called The Essene Odyssey, which he tracked at least one of these groups um, all the way through to Kashmir. And he was a, a good scholar and he had a lot of, documents that he got his hands on and I think I think his work's pretty pretty sound but I, I don't think Jesus went to India there's no reason to think so I mean there's nothing in his teaching which would necessitate um, arguing that he'd been to India that I know of at any rate because there's a lot of different books on that I just wondered yeah, what, what yeah, your I've take got, on was it I've got about a dozen of them here I mean it's I've read them all, and I'm not convinced, to be honest. But I might be wrong, for heaven's sake. You know, who am I? I'm just, you know, a researcher and writer and person with some questions. I mean, uh, you know, I might be wrong. So don't take what I say as, as gospel. I wanted to ask you about your tours in Egypt that yeah. you have led, where you talked about people just bursting into tears. Yeah, I mean, Egypt's like that. I mean, I've just come back from Egypt uh, three days ago. And uh, I was reminded again, there's a huge emotional content in Egypt, and it just hits people. Um, even people who are incredibly skeptical will suddenly just switch as something hits them, and they don't necessarily know what it is. Egypt's a very ancient and powerful place, and those temples still have a spirit that's tangible. And you can feel it. And what I always do is hire at least, well, I say hire, we pay to have two or three of the temples at night by ourselves. So there's no other people wandering around. It's just us. And we can um, go to particular parts of the temple and meditate or chant or do whatever we like or just sit in silence and try and feel these places because it's, it's a very strange thing that Egypt does have this strong feeling and strong spirit and it does hit people. I mean, my, my stepdaughter, who's, who I, I think you're probably referring to, yeah. she, she uh, spent all her life in the fashion industry, uh, you know, going all around the world with models and photographers. And I took her to the, to Egypt on one occasion and, just going into the Valley of the Kings, she suddenly looked at it and just said, I remember this, and burst into tears. I mean, it was the most unlikely thing that I would have ever expected. It just hit her. And there was another chap I remember who, he liked the pyramids, but he wasn't that impressed with uh, a lot of what he was seeing until we went to a place called Abydos. 
and he just he just lost it. He he was just wandering round and round this place called the Assyrian, which is out the back of a temple built uh, to Seti the first, just saying, mumbling to himself, "This is the real thing. This is the real thing," and he just he completely had gone. It affects people like that. It's it's very interesting, and uh, you know it doesn't have to be as dramatic as that. But you often see people just walking by themselves through some of these temples, which are so, some of them are incredibly well preserved, by the way. Uh, just in a kind of trance-like state, it's quite extraordinary. I love the place, and I want to go now. Now you made me want to go. Uh, you must go. I really have also, to go. Don't go on you know, a standard cheap tourist venture. I mean, seek out one of the special tours where you have sort of private access to some of these places because if you're with everybody else during the day, it's just shoulder-to-shoulder mayhem and you won't feel anything. Michael, is there a lockdown with the knowledge from Egypt? Is there a blockade on what we're allowed to know? There's a blockage on what we're allowed to know about everything, not just Egypt. I mean, what happens is that we've got particular people have particular perspectives on places and they have got themselves into positions of power where they can give the permits or uh, they control the interpretation. And, you know, if you go against them, you don't get any publicity, you don't get any permits to dig, you don't get any support. And this is the way that it works. Or you get destroyed. I mean, I know various people who have had a terrible time um, because what they have to say runs completely counter to the prevailing paradigm. I know two people, in fact, who have had their PhDs refused because they ran against the prevailing paradigm. Um, One of them went and did a PhD elsewhere and got it and is now one of the major figures in his field. The other took it to court and uh, the sort of academic court that judged it said, yes, of course he should have his PhD, but it's actually down to the tutor at that particular university and that tutor absolutely refused to give it to him because of what he'd written. So that's the way it works and I'm sure Michael Cremo has case after case after case of people Uh, in this position. There is a... There's a lot of sort of B-grade scholars who are more interested in administrative control and power than anything else. I mean, for example, the guy who's the current head of the Antiquities Department in Israel once physically attacked me, punched me, on the sofa of my own home after I'd driven him from Oxford to my home where he was staying the night, given him a good meal, and I was driving him to the airport the next day. He physically attacked me (laughs) in my living room uh, because of some grudge he had or other. Uh, And then I got a series of letters from him threatening to take me to court and so on. This, This man is now the head of the Antiquities Department in Israel, a guy called Yossi Patrick. And I don't care who knows this, because it's true. And yet this is the sort of guy who monitors what's going on, who gives the permits. Now, do you think I'd ever get a permit to do something in Israel? I think it's most unlikely.
you do get permits in Egypt, right? Well, I go along with other people because I, I'm not an archaeologist. My um, postgraduate work is all on symbolism. My master's degree is actually in Renaissance symbolism, but it was hermetic symbolism, and of course hermetic symbolism comes directly from Egypt. So what I'm interested in, and the sort of talks I give to groups in Egypt, are on how the Egyptian um, symbolism particularly was transmuted and picked up in the Renaissance and used by the Renaissance painters and sculptors and writers. And that's my interest. So I'm not concerned with physically digging the stuff up. I'm concerned with interpreting what emerges, if you see what I mean. I do. I actually do. How is your work dovetailed into Robert Temple's work? I know you're both friends, but what is the interchange that's exciting to you regarding Robert Temple's work and your work? Well, I, lo I love Robert's work because he's such a maverick, <laughs> and he's not scared of anybody. He's one of the finest scholars that I've ever met. I mean, he's absolutely methodical and uh, nitpicking and has a memory that I could only dream of. I mean, he reads a book and he remembers pretty much every page where everything is. He doesn't have to take notes. He knows where it all is if he has to uh, retrieve it. Um, but he's made a lot of enemies and he's constantly having to battle against us. And I like that too, because I like the fact that he's got the courage and the strength to keep battling. Uh, you know, I like people like that. I, I think it takes people like that to, to move things ahead. Otherwise, we'd just all collapse in a kind of uh, sleepy, dreary uniformity. Again, you know, this is Michael Cremo's area. I mean, it's just, you have to keep pushing. It's definitely a very exciting route of understanding our past, who we are, and what actually has happened. Fascinating. Yeah, it's absolutely exciting, and I'm driven by the excitement of it. When I'm researching, I'm, I'm sort of bubbling with excitement at what I might find and the implications of what I might find, because I know that when I'm looking at stuff, I will find things, because I've never not found things. It's, it's all there. It's just, it's just being able to bring an independent and unbiased perspective to the data. And that's actually surprisingly difficult. And probably very rare. Probably. I mean, a lot of people are, uh, a lot of people lack courage, I suppose I could say. I mean, maybe that sounds a bit arrogant. No, it's true. It's definitely true because people are concerned about their jobs, their status, their ability to continue working. You know, the loss of a paycheck has more power over most people than a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Look at what happened in climatology. A lot of these scientists all over the world are scared to stand up and explain the data, not the story, but the data, because they'll lose their positions. It's terrible. Yeah, that's true. And their grants. Yeah, that's perfectly true. It is a big thing that, you know, that's why I admire people who go against it, and Robert Temple is one of them. Do you miss Richard Lay? I do, terribly, yeah. I mean, we used to, we just, we talked almost every day. We, we sort of, how, how we put things together when I was doing projects with him, we used to have sort of brainstorming sessions constantly. And 
he and I were very different personalities, but we were both coming from the same place, and we both had um, you know similar similar kind of knowledge of things and I used to love these brainstorming sessions and the way we put things together. So, yeah, it's a great loss. He seemed to have passed on young. I mean, he wasn't an old guy. No, no, I think he was 62. That's not old. No. In no. today's terms, that's not old. No, no, he, 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 wasn't, he wasn't well. Okay. Proof of it. And he, needed, he really needed to get into hospital and be sorted out. And had he done so, he would have. I don't think he would have died. But because of this case, you know, involving Dan Brown and the rest of it, um, it just, you know, that took over our lives for a couple of years. And I think that basically did for him, frankly. Since you've mentioned it, and I didn't know whether to mention it or not, I just wondered if you could just explain what you just said. You went to court for several years and were in a lawsuit. Well, well the thing, yeah, I mean, there's not much to say, really. I mean... Um, uh, you know, what does a writer or a filmmaker or an artist own? He or she owns intellectual property. And we felt, and I think correctly, that Dan Brown had stolen our intellectual property because he was claiming, I mean, by British law, if you used someone else's research for commercial gain, and you used their research so that you didn't have to do your own, um, then that was a violation of intellectual property. And, you know, it was obvious that that's what he had done with the Da Vinci Code. And so, I mean, we never wanted to go to court. We just wanted recognition of this fact that, that actually we had done the research. But the publishers played hardball, and they refused to even talk to us for about three months. And... I think they really wanted the court case. Uh, I think they probably wanted the publicity. I don't know. But it was very sad because by losing the case, it put back intellectual property protection in England probably about 35 years or so. You know, I mean, the funny thing, the ironic thing is the judge argued that he won the case because what we had written was history and there was no copyright on history, where it was quite clear in Holy Blood, we specifically said this is a hypothesis, and a hypothesis is intellectual property. It has copyright protection. Yes. So <laughs> what they've done is said that the whole story of Jesus marrying Mary Magdalene and having a child and coming to France is true, <laughs> because they've said it's, it's standard history, so he didn't steal it. So, ironically, in England at least, by law, Jesus married Mary Magdalene and had a child. <laughs> <laughs> now, were all three of you sued? No, Henry okay. didn't want to be part of it. Okay. So, he just gave us best wishes and said he'd just stay out of it. So, he didn't really make any comment one way or the other. He just, want, he, he, he just stayed out of it. So, Richard and I basically did it. Sometimes you've just got to stand up and be oh, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. The price was high, I have to say. The price was very, very high. Indeed. But, you know, you, 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 have, you, you, can't, you, you can't let some things just go by. You, you, have to, you have to stand up, and that's all there is to it, whatever, whatever, whatever happens. Well, I think we all know with court cases that 
a lot of times the people that are in the right don't always win. <laughs> I mean, just because you win a court case doesn't mean that you were right. Yeah, exactly. And so taking it in context, I had one last question for you. I know we spent a lot of time now, and that has to do with during the time of Philo of Alexandria, there was a Jewish community called Therapeutae. Am I the pronouncing it? Yeah. Yes. Where women were equal and not like the Essenes who excluded women. And I was wondering if you could say something about that particular community. That seemed very interesting in Egypt. Well, the Egyptian Jewish community was very diverse and was very interesting. I think the Therapeutae are one of the more interesting of them, the fact that women uh, played an equal part. And, uh, I mean, Philo is a funny guy. He, he, he wrote, I've got all Philo's works here, and if you read through them, he doesn't mention once the Jewish temple, which was functioning in the Delta. And that omission is, is very telling. You need to ask the question, why didn't he mention it? I don't know, but I, I suspect that in some way it was connected with the Therapeutae, because the Therapeutae were a very mystical group. Their attitude towards the Old Testament was not dogmatic or fundamentalist. They saw it as metaphor. They saw it as uh, a means of a mystical, experiential approach to spiritual knowledge. I mean, I'd hesitate to call them Gnostics, but they were certainly operating in the same general area. I, I, I find them a fascinating, fascinating group, and uh, I wish that perhaps that had more influence on what subsequently became rabbinical Judaism. Did you visit this place in Egypt? It doesn't exist anymore. It, it, it's, it's, uh, Do we know where it was? More, not exactly. Okay. No, it was slightly um, west of Alexandria, near Lake Mariotis. But it's, it's, there's a, a New Zealand professor, in fact, uh, Joan Taylor, who is the only person I know who's done a considerable amount of work on this, and she thinks she's more or less located it, but uh, you know she's not certain until she can raise some money to dig. She's never going to know, even if there's anything there. But reading Philo's account, I don't think there'd be much there because they lived a very simple life with very simple buildings. I just don't think you'd find anything that was distinctive. How do we even know about them then? We only know what Philo wrote about them. Okay. And that's, uh, uh, as, as we've discussed, they took the Old Testament as metaphor, not as literal truth, which is very different. Um, they seem to have had a sort of a, a kind of Kabbalistic approach, too, because they were very involved um, in the, the numbers of days, the numbers and in numerology, say, things like this, which brings them into the orbit of the Book of Jubilees, for example, or the Book of Enoch, which then brings them vaguely into the orbit of uh, some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which um, some of the scrolls express this sort of numerical symbolism. So it's, uh, Philo is giving us a fragment of something greater, but we don't actually know what the something greater was and how much communication the Therapeutae, for example, had with other possible similar groups. 
uh, around the Middle East at the time. We just, uh, there just isn't any information. I mean, this is a frustrating thing um, about all this. You see, the problem is the Jewish community in Alexandria rose in insurrection around about 115 AD. No one knows why. There was a, a fellow called Lucas who led it. No one knows who he was or what his ideas were, but the whole Jewish community was utterly destroyed and all their records were burned and lost. So whatever might have been in some of the libraries there has gone. What would be nice, of course, is if you know, they're building a road sometime in Alexandria and a bulldozer happens to uncover a, a house of a you know wealthy Jewish intellectual and there happen to be a whole lot of documents there. I mean, that would be nice, but it hasn't happened yet. Reminds me, though, of Michael Cremo's experience of archaeology that poses something different than a worldview that's been integrated and absorbed will be cast aside. And I'm just wondering if you feel that that would happen. Well, that certainly happens. I mean, they found a whole lot of Jewish documents. Uh, the Saudi Arabians are building a road through the remains of a very big walled Jewish trading city in Arabia, a place called Khaibar, uh, which uh, Muhammad took um, sort of early 7th century. Um, and they were building this road and they uncovered a library with a whole lot of scrolls and books and so on, codices and so on. And the Saudis just would have destroyed them. But a guy I know bought the whole lot and they're all now in a vault in Switzerland. But, you know, they're not much use in a vault in Switzerland. They keep trying to get them to release them to scholars or let people look through them. But uh, What's the fear? That he won't get them back? I don't know, to be honest with you. I, I really don't know. He's got a lot of stuff, actually, a ton of stuff. He spends a lot of money, I mean, millions and millions on, on this kind of material. But he just likes it. He sort of keeps it and looks at it and shows a few friends what he's got. You know, he's shown me a few things that are pretty mind-boggling. <laughs> you have good friends. <laughs> <laughs> I have one last question for you. It's a personal question. You can always take the fifth. Do you believe in reincarnation? I do. I've, got, I've had experience with about seven of my own. I do too. When you were describing what went on in Egypt on some of these tours, it reminded me of them having a recall, recalling the place. Quite possible. No, when I was in my early 20s, I had quite a few... Um, I'd drop into this other life for sort of 30 seconds and I'd have, and all the memory would come back. You know, there was, it was self-evidently true. But I, I started sort of investigating them a bit and then I thought, well, hang on, this is ridiculous because I've got this life to live and I've got this life to do things and if I start getting obsessed with previous ones, it's, it's not going to help. It's, it's uh, crazy. So um, I figured that the reason why I was dropping into these things was there was something I needed to learn from them. And once I figured that out and I figured out what, it, what I needed to learn from them, I then stopped. And so by sort of my mid-twenties, it never happened again because there was no longer a point. Uh, I was getting on with, with what I had to do now. What's your next project, Michael? I'm having a bit of a break at the moment. I, I'm, I'm not. I've got a few sort of ideas, but I'm, 
I'm not writing any non-fiction at the moment. I'm, I'm just, I just had this idea that I'd like to tell a story. So I'm, I'm, I'm writing this, I'm about 300 pages or so into a book set in medieval times. Uh, it's just a story. Nothing more. I'm not trying to win any prizes for literary excellence or anything like this. It's simply a story. I, I just thought, you know, the true calling of a writer really is to be able to sit down and tell a story to the kids. It just seemed to me that I wanted something simple because after 12 books in English that are quite complicated, I suddenly had this hankering for simplicity and this was a way of dealing with it. I don't blame you. I mean, if you took a hiatus on even writing anything, I would understand. <laughs> You've earned your right to not write. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? Uh, a million things, but we don't have time. Well, I thank you so much for being our guest and taking so much time to talk with us and share where you're at and the many things that have happened to you and the many discoveries you've had. I hope that you will join me again at another time, and thank you so much. Anytime you like, Kim. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you, Michael. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.